So I wanted to start tonight with a quote from Angelus Arian. She says, in many shamanic societies, if you came to a shaman or a medicine person complaining of being disheartened, dispirited, or depressed, they would ask you one of four questions. When did you stop dancing? When did you stop singing? When did you stop being enchanted by stories? When did you stop finding comfort in the sweet territory of silence? Dancing, singing, storytelling, and silence are the four universal salves. So these questions about when did we stop doing these things that bring us life, dancing, singing, stories, silence, are often exactly the questions that bring us to retreat. And we're not exactly doing a lot of dancing here, but we are doing yoga. We're working with the body. And maybe we'll do some chanting instead of singing. Although Buddhist singing, I think, might be something that will come someday to the Western Buddhist world. We're certainly, you're going to hear a lot of stories, so you get to listen to stories. You can think about that while you're sitting here tonight. And, of course, the sweet territory of silence is where you are at this point. So when we go on a retreat, we mentioned this a bit last night, the prep for the retreat, you know, it is so arduous. You have to arrange all your things. You have to take care of your partner, make sure he or she is going to be okay without you. Your kids, your cat, your dog, your job, your email or your mail. And then you have to think about, well, what am I going to bring to the retreat? You know, am I going to do Zen austerity and bring maybe the same outfit to wear every day? but maybe you won't even change it. Maybe it's just the same outfit. Or, knowing that Spirit Rock has a changing climate, will you bring an outfit for every occasion? Sun and rain. And, and which shawl? If you're a regular meditator, you probably have more than one. And then you have to think, you know, do you bring the beautiful bright colored one to bring some joy into a rainy day? Or do you decide, no, I'm going to be more monk-like or nun-like and go for plain? Or which shoes to bring, because those are the only thing that anybody looks at, right? We're all walking around with our eyes down. And should you bring your pillow and your down comforter? And what about that special food or that bar of chocolate that you might have stashed away? (coughs) So for something as simple as a retreat like this, it gets pretty complicated. And it's a lot of gear and a lot of decisions. And we're all here because we have some sense of vision. And it's a vision that has brought thousands of people to monasteries and to retreats like this one over the years for many, many centuries. A vision that it's possible to wake up. It's possible even, as the Buddha said, to be happy. 
and that we can be more present in our lives, we can see more deeply into the nature of our experience, and that in doing this, not only do we alleviate our own suffering, but we also serve all other beings in that way. (coughs) So it's a vision in which we really live in and from the heart. I remember seeing a sign once that said, if you lived in your heart, you would be home by now. (laughs) I liked it. So here's the story. I should tell you my throat's a little tickly tonight, so we're going to hope that I'm going to make it. A couple of Christmases ago, I was on the big island of Hawaii where I live part of the time and expect to be living more in another year. And I went over to Puako to visit a friend over on the Kona side of the island. And she said, okay, at sunset, we have to go see this very special thing that I want to show you. So it got to be, you know, a little bit before sunset and we walked down to the beach and we went out on the rocks out towards where the tide pools are. And she said, now watch. And pretty soon as we watched, one of those great big honu, the sea turtles, came in. And then after a while, a second one, and then a third, and then an eighth, and then a twelfth. And they were stacking up on each other in the tide pool. And it was just amazing. There were many people there who were watching this. And she said they come every night and they come to the tide pools because it's safe and they can feed and there aren't any of the big creatures there, the sharks and the things like that. And night after night after night, those sea turtles seeking refuge come to this place of safety. So you see the parallel, don't you? Last night, we took refuge, right? All of us sea turtles together. We took refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. Some of you maybe for the first time ever. Some of you may still be a little confused about what did I do last night? Some of you have done it many, many times. And Spirit Rock, like many centers all over the world, is a place of refuge, a place of safety, a place where people come over and over and over again to find some safety. And we come here to wake up as best we can to see if we can see a little bit more, to hear and learn and practice deep truths, to be in community, to be with like-minded people who are seeking the same thing that we are over and over and over again. And I remember in my early years of practice, I was so happy to be practicing. It was something I'd looked for most of my life, this place of silence and contemplation. So I knew I was happy and I knew that I wanted to come over and over again. I wasn't, I don't know that I was really clear quite what it was that was happening. I just knew that something was happening. And sometime later, um, our good friend Sylvia Borstein started talking about what she called the third and a half noble truth. So if you remember, there are four noble truths, that there is 
you know, stress and out of roundness and dis-ease with our lives. And that attachment to things being different from the way that they are is the cause. And the third noble truth is that there can be an end. And Sylvia likes to say, well, you know, maybe you're not going to get to a complete end of suffering, but at least there's less. And that's the third and a half noble truth, that there's less suffering. And I think all of us who have been here many, many times would say, yeah, that's, it's really true. I know from the bottom of my gut that there's less suffering. And as I was thinking about this this afternoon, I was remembering in the, also in the early years of my practice when my daughters were teenagers and they knew there was less suffering too because every now and then they would say to me, Mom, go sit. <laughs> go sit and then we will all suffer less. They didn't say that, but that was really the implication was that we would all suffer less. So our time together is this place of refuge. You came here knowing, some of you, or suspecting, some of you, that it would be safe and that perhaps at the very least you might find a way to lessen your suffering. And we live in such a time, don't we, you know, it's, it's amazing. Every now and then I think, now it's going to get better, but it doesn't seem to be getting any better. We have these elections and we have all kinds of contentiousness and we have financial crises and people out of work and we have all these wars and we have all the stuff that's going on with the environment. Phew, you know, we need a refuge. We really do. And of course we live in a very hurried and insanely busy culture. Many of you in groups today talked about just how tired you were. You know, just really, really tired. And we seem to be bent on fitting more into every tiny space and every minute. So here's another story. This is a Zen story. It comes from the Koan tradition. And in the story, a monk is sweeping the grounds of the temple. You could imagine somebody out here sweeping. And another monk came and looked at him and said, too busy, too busy. And the first monk said to the second, he said, you should know there's one who is not busy. And the second monk said, if that's true, there are two moons. I just don't believe it. And the first monk held up his broom and said, which moon is this? So this is one of these really weird, difficult Zen stories. Don't worry about it. You're not being tested on it. So the first part of the story, when I heard it, really caught me. You know, like, one who is not busy. How could, what would that be like? You know, what a wonderful refuge it would be not to be busy. And I remembered that um, somebody who was a student of mine in Santa Cruz said once to me, I'm not busy and I intend to stay that way. I was utterly astounded. How could somebody not be busy? I mean, do you know anybody who's not busy? Maybe you do. But I don't know very many people who aren't busy. And not only to not be busy, but to be really determined, you know, I'm going to stay that way. Everyone we know is busy. You know, we all have full appointment books and, you know, or you carry it around. Now you can carry it around in your phone, right? Your calendar. So you always have it with you. 
And every day in my email, you know, Google happily sends me, you know, my schedule for the day just in case I've forgotten it. Even my grandchildren have schedules, you know. It's a little scary. There aren't any, or there certainly aren't very many, kind of lost afternoons like I used to have when I was a kid, just hanging out, playing in the neighborhood woods or whatever. So we really become, in the popular phrase, we become human doings and not human beings. Except for now. So here you are, you've come here and you've stopped. You know, you've come to a complete halt, we hope, in terms of your everyday life. Some of you talked about how your minds have not come to a complete halt. That's true. And you're here and you're completely outside of your everyday busy schedule. You were wise enough. I really want you to remember that, that you were wise enough to know to come here and to enter that sweet territory of silence. So here we are. And today you spent hours sitting still with your eyes closed. And you walked slowly for even more hours, clearly not going anywhere. You know. There's a wonderful story from the early days of uh, Vipassana practice, maybe even how he was there, I don't know, because I know he was practicing at IMS in those years, when a new mailman came around to deliver mail to the retreat center. And he came during a walking period. (laughs) And people were out in front walking very, very slowly, lifting, moving, Placing. And he went in and he looked at the secretary and he said, it's so sad. It's just so sad, those poor people. What is wrong with them? You know, looks pretty strange. And today you've had instructions, but not really too many, just to aid you with the skills that you need in order to rest here in this moment, really doing nothing, doing nothing. And you've been wise enough to realize that this is valuable. It's really valuable to take a time to do this. And like the Honu, like the sea turtles, you have come seeking a safe harbor. And by the end of this first day, you have been reminded, if you're an old student, or you're finding out, if you're a new one, that it takes enormous skill to do nothing. Isn't it interesting? Just to be here in the present moment, giving your attention to the present moment, and it is so difficult. It sounds simple. It is simple, but it's not easy. (coughs) So we know the natural world has times of stopping. We've had one today. We're having perfect weather for the retreat, you know, this kind of closed in, wet, wintry weather, or at the time of year when the nights are dark. Of course, it used to be that nights were really dark without all the extra lights. And I've been enjoying one of my old age hobbies is astronomy. 
And I'm very interested to find out, you know, how much astronomers seek dark sky because we don't have dark skies anymore, you know. And, but this darkness was part of our natural rhythm and the winter time. And if it wasn't that, for example, there, used to, there were tribes where women, when they were menstruating, would go off and, and be apart and be quiet for that period of time where they were bleeding, when they would have a, a time of rest and reflection. And if not that, we all know those places where life creates a kind of pause. And maybe all it is is you get a call to the flu and you're down for a few days. Or maybe it's a much more serious illness or an accident. And that sort of time when everything shifts, changes, slows down and becomes very simple. And we stop and we take time to heal, however much time that we need. And again, a number of you talked about that in the groups today, about how this was a time of healing for you. Sometimes we struggle, right? We don't want to pause. I don't want to be sick. I'm going to keep going. You know, I've done this any number of times. But somehow we think that these slowing down and stopping times are not productive or they're bad or they're wrong and we shouldn't have them. But I think with age and with a certain amount of experience, we really come to value them and and to make them our our own. But of course, the thing about that Zen story is the Zen story points to something more, doesn't it? It's not just about there is one who is not busy. But it also says, you know, when he holds up the broom and he says, this is the second moon, he's really pointing towards a different stance well, one of the things you can see that he's saying is a different stance towards the activity in our lives. What does it mean? The broom is the second moon. And, but one of the things you could consider is perhaps is there's a way to be not busy even when there's a lot to do. The broom, the work itself, is the second moon, he says. So my sense is that this is really encouraging us to learn a place of presence in the midst of our lives, such total presence, just total presence. And in out of that total presence, we can do many things and we do them from that place of stillness. You might remember that T.S. Eliot talked about the still place where the dance is. So our work here is a training, right? You may think you've come to a retreat, but you've really come to the gym. And you're training. You're doing this practice. You're learning these exercises. And you're training to facilitate finding a way to be fully present in your life. And we start really simply by sitting still and just giving your attention to the breath. But this is not about being able to find your breath all the time. It's about learning how to be fully mindful in every moment in your life. Big goal, big goal. And so we hope that you're going to find something of that here so that you too can be like our monk friend, really present even in the midst of work. So I think there's a list that I've come to like. It's actually not the Buddha's list. It's a Mary Grace Orr list. 
And there are three words. I think they're pretty congruent with what the Buddha teaches, which is why I use them. So curiosity, confidence, and contentment. And these are three qualities that you could work with bringing to your experience here on the retreat. And in bringing them to your experience on the retreat, using them to explore your situation, you, know, you can get better acquainted with this, this place of rest and healing. So curiosity. Children are endlessly curious. I have a grandson. He doesn't do this anymore. He's getting way too old because now he's 10, which is very old if you're 10. But um, when he was about five, he would sometimes come tearing into the room and he'd put his little hands on his hips and he'd look around and he'd say, what's going on in here? I think actually he was echoing his mother, but I actually rather liked it because he was curious, what's going on in here? And, you know, it's a great question. You could try it. What's going on in here? What's going on? What's going on in here? What's going on in here? What's going on all around us? You know? What's going on? And sometimes that curiosity about what is going on is what brings us to practice, right? Maybe it even brought you to this retreat, some of you. (laughs) And sometimes as we live out our lives, there's even a kind of desperation to our curiosity. You know, we're really desperate in the deepest way to know why. What is this? What is this human experience? Someone once said, I've always loved this quote, they said, you know, life, having a life, you know, being born is like getting on a cruise ship and you set out to sail around for a while and then you're going to sink. That's it. You know, so what is this? What is this to be born, to have this life and then... You know, I was looking at one of my friends the other day and I thought, he's looking a lot older. And, you know, these days when I have that thought, I think, uh, I think probably people are looking at me and going, "Mm, she's looking a lot older, you know. We're looking like a bunch of those vegetables on the cut rate shelf, you know. We're beginning to wither and dry up a little bit. And if you think about it too much, you realize those of us who are aging, so there's a number of us in the room, we're dying. We're beginning that process. What's going on here? Get curious about this amazing thing that's a life. What can that be about? Or maybe in the middle of your life you're thinking, well, how come I'm never happy? Why is that? Or why do I keep going around in circles? Or why doesn't my life work? You know, why don't my jobs work, my relationships work? And this curiosity, these questions, are often what brings us to practice. Someone says, you ought to try meditating, or here's this book, or here's this Dharma talk on a tape or a DVD, or why don't you go to a retreat? I've talked to several people today who are here because somebody said, yeah, you ought to go sit a retreat, try it out. So you're trying to figure out what's happening, what's this human experience. And you come here and 
you're told, okay, get curious about this moment. Pay attention to this very moment. Stay in the moment. Don't go off into the future, plans, daydreams. Don't go back into the past, rehashing. Just go into the, right into this moment, into this breath. That's where we were today. And sometimes the instruction is penetrate it with your awareness. So that's not just be with it. That's like go into it, penetrate it with your awareness. And in the coming days, the instructions will unfold more. You know, be with seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and the mind itself penetrating every experience with your awareness, meeting each experience with friendliness, not trying to push it away, but really welcoming it in, whatever it is, and curiosity. So as we said last night, all of the Buddha's instructions are for the investigation of your own heart and mind. So be curious. Investigate, he says. What is the nature of my experience? What is it to be human? One of my teachers, Hamid Ali, whom some of you might know, says that curiosity is the most valuable spiritual tool, which is a teaching I've always loved since I'm something of a curious being myself. And on the list of the qualities of the enlightened mind is investigation. So the Buddha is encouraging us to investigate our experience. Our experience is to be attended to, be present with, investigate, not identified with. So you could experiment with this. For example, as you're being with the breath, maybe at the next sitting, imagine breathing as though you had never breathed before. You're a space alien. You come from a planet where nothing gets nourished the way we do. And now you're breathing. What is this weird experience that these humans have called breathing? And breathe as though you were trying to figure out what's breathing. You breathe in, things expand, lots of things in the body move. You breathe out to really begin to be present with that kind of freshness. The other instruction, just in case you don't like that one, that's sometimes given is to breathe as though it were your last breath and you're not ever going to have one of those again. So you could try that too. Really, as we have various experiences on the retreat, rather than, you know, why is this happening to me, that kind of question, but really to get curious about, well, what's, what's the, what are the causes and the conditions of it? What, what is the nature of my discontent, my aching body or my anger or my restlessness? And what's, what's creating it? What gives rise to this experience? What happens when I'm fully present with it? And can I pay attention to it even as it begins to subside and dissipate? Bringing that investigative edge to every moment. What really is going on here? I always try to include in my teaching these days, <coughs> some of you who have sat with me recently will be familiar with this. The what's going on here also for me goes on to very big questions and 
one of my current daily spiritual practices that I really love is the practice of looking at the astronomy picture of the day. And if you don't know that website, I totally encourage you to find it after the retreat. And on the astronomy picture of the day, every day there's some new amazing picture of galaxies and nebulae and you know, this small group of galaxies a mere 40 million light years away with, you know, many billions of stars amongst them. I mean, the, the size and the numbers just boggle the mind. And I do this because it makes me aware that the picture is very, very, very big. And whatever I'm fussing about in my life this particular day is not so very, very big. What is going on here? How did the Big Bang, or whatever it was that happened then, know to keep rolling around along, or not know, how did it keep rolling along? And it, one of the ways it manifested is in a Vipassana retreat at Spirit Rock in December of 2010. I don't know. Isn't that weird? It's really, it, I mean, don't think about it too much because it's really weird. And it creates the sense of a much, much bigger picture that we're part of. And it's very helpful to begin to understand our experience that way. And I don't know about you, but I suffer less when I understand that I'm a very, very teeny little speck in a very big picture. We're not so identified with the personal part. So we train here to meet our experience in this way, to be present, to be curious, not to be reactive, to be friendly and kind to our experience, not to be judgmental and critical. And as we do this practice, you work with it for a while, you begin to develop some ease, some confidence, some trust, if you will, in the practice. And some of you already have that. Some of you, you know, look at the list of, some of you have given up putting the list of retreats on your interview sheets. It just says many or a gazillion or whatever, you know. So you've sat lots and lots and lots of retreats. So you've really come to have confidence in this practice. Some of you aren't so sure. You know, it's that when you're learning to ride a bike and it's pretty wobbly. Um, And so maybe what you're trusting is the confidence of others. The person who said, try a retreat, or the person who gave you the book. And so we, we trust that. And then gradually we begin to develop trust in our own practice as we know it better. And confidence, you know, sometimes confidence can get a little bit of bad press because we're not really talking about being inflated or being egocentric about it. It's just knowing that what you're doing is helpful. It's like when your car is, you know, it's all been maintained and it's going along well, you have confidence that your car will get you from here to there, you know. Or you're on a trail that you've hiked before and you know that if you follow the signs and pay attention, you will start at one place and end in another. Or you go out with a guide whom you trust and you know that if, you know, the, this person is informative and doesn't get you lost, and they will also get you 
where you want to go. And it's exactly the same way that we develop confidence in the Dharma and in the teachings and in the Buddha himself. And so there's a couple of areas where it's really helpful to train and to develop some confidence. And I just wanted to mention them at this point in the retreat. (coughs) One is the area of effort. The wise use of effort is one of the things that the Buddha talks about a lot. And it's that place of how to work with your energy. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, she's got to be kidding. I don't have any energy left, you know, the end of the first day. That's probably true. But you're going to have to trust me on this one. It will look better in the morning, and you will have energy. And beginning to learn and to have confidence in your use of it is very helpful because it's not a static thing. You don't just set the speed at 50 miles an hour and go, you know. It's a constant adjustment for what's needed. Not too much, not too little. The image that the Buddha gave is of a musical instrument, a lute, which was one of the popular instruments in his day. And if you've ever watched um, uh, somebody who plays strings, they are constantly tuning. I actually happened to be at a Schlotky guitar concert a couple of weeks ago when I was on the island, and I was amazed that he was tuning even in the middle of a song. You know, there'd be these little things going on, getting the strings just right. It's like, wow, you know, always attending. Are the strings too tight? Are they too loose? And adjusting, adjusting, adjusting. And so that's exactly, you don't want to be too tight. If you come in here, by God, this sitting, enlightenment or bust, you're going to be toast. It will not be good for you. And pretty soon, you'll be kind of burnt out, and that won't work. And if you've come to this retreat thinking, well, you know, could have gone to the spa and maybe relaxed, or maybe the beach, but I came to Spirit Rock, so I'm just going to really take it easy, and I'm not going to do very much, and I won't go to a sitting unless I feel like it, and I'm going to take six naps in a day, and, well, you know, that won't be so helpful either. And your practice won't deepen under those circumstances. So really getting it just right. Sometimes pushing a little harder, sometimes relaxing. Some of you are here doing grieving retreats. And so you might have a softer and more gentler retreat. Some of you are here and you are ready to do what I call John Wayne practice. You are going to go. And you have energy and you're feeling healthy right now. And by all means, go. Get up early, sit up late, you know, do all of the things that really push with the practice. You need to suss out for yourself which one of these, or one of many, is right. The Buddha talks about there are some areas of wise effort. So that's sustaining and encouraging helpful states. So if you find that you're in a pretty settled, contented, happy, present state of mind, you might want to get a little interested because it's helpful to know how to encourage those states. 
And if the other side of it is to dispel and avoid unhealthy states or unskillful states. So if you find that you're cranky and complaining and judgmental about yourself and everybody else, get also interested and figure out, you know, a little what the conditions are because you don't particularly want to encourage those kinds of states when they come. You're not going to get it right. Get over it right now. You're not going to get it right. You ever watched a child who's learning how to walk? You know, did they get it right? No, there's not a baby on the planet, I don't think, that gets up and starts walking and just walks, you know. They stagger, they get to their feet, they fall, they laugh or cry. And then they do it again. And then after a while they get a couple of steps and then they fall and they laugh or they cry. And then they do it again. And meditation is exactly the same way. You know, you work along. Sometimes you'll come in here, you'll have a kind of a, an easy sit. It'll seem settled. The mind will be quiet. You'll think, cool, I'm on my way. And then you come back the next sit. It's all over. The mind is crazed. The body is itchy and restless. And your knees hurt. And you think, wait a minute, what happened? It's not anything that happened. It's how it is with this practice, you know, and you keep working it, keep working it, bringing the amount of energy, being gentle and kind when that's appropriate, pushing a little when that's appropriate. It's a training camp. It's a training camp. I mentioned in both of my groups today, and I wanted to mention it tonight for the rest of you, there's a lovely teaching from St. Francis de Sales, who is one of the great Catholic contemplative saints, about this business of coming back. You know, people were talking about how they're just endlessly coming back. You know, their mind is just wandering off so many times. And he says, if you come back 120 times in an hour of practice, so that's once every 30 seconds, it's an hour well spent. So it's that coming back over and over again. (coughs) That's part of the training. And having the energy and the effort to do that is part of the work. You probably sense some of this even at the end of just a day of practice. Knowing when to rest, when to come into the tide pool and settle in for the night and when to work really hard. As confidence develops, one of the things you may begin to sense is that meditating itself, knowing to sit, our Soto Zen friends say this, they say to sit is to be enlightened. And what they mean is that knowing to sit is an act of awakening. So you already, you're already somewhat awake. You know to come here. Very important. And you begin to sense that the place of safety, it's not like you get to some particular place. The place of safety is the place of attention, is knowing to be present. And so unlike our sea turtle friends, what this begins to mean is that our place of safety is very portable because attention can be anywhere that you are, anywhere in the world. We also begin to see and have confidence 
that we don't always have to know that the place of safety is actually often a place of not knowing. It's often a place of some mystery. It's connected to that shamanic world that Angelus Arian talked about earlier, the realm of mystery and not knowing. So here's a really good secret for those of you who are new. Suzuki Roshi, in a wonderful teaching, says, um, in the beginner's mind, there are many options. In the mind of the expert, there are few. So as beginners, you're really open. You have no idea what to expect. And that means pretty much anything can happen. And that's a really good place to practice from. When you come here thinking you know, you sat a retreat, it was like this, you're going to sit another retreat now, and it's going to be exactly like that one if you liked it, or it's going to be utterly different if you didn't like it, and you know. That's not such a good place to be. It's much more helpful to be in that place of not knowing. And just in case you don't have enough Zen stories tonight, there is another great Zen koan in which the emperor asks Bodhidharma, who was the great Zen sage and teacher, he said, who are you? And Bodhidharma, who was an old coyote, if there ever was one, said, I don't know. Haven't a clue. Haven't a clue. So, you know, you could try that on while you're investigating and being curious. Don't even know who you are. Forget about it. Forget about your career and your life and your way of being and what you like and don't like and just see what it's like not to know and experiment with that for a bit and develop a little confidence in not knowing. It's a very good place actually to have confidence and it's a good place to relax when you don't know. Just let it be the way it is. Bring a little of that curiosity we talked about to it and develop some confidence. You know, don't know what's going to happen next in the day or what the interview will be like or what the sitting is or what to do next. You know, just let it unfold. And you may find that it's actually this place of not knowing is the place of great rest and much, way easier than knowing everything. I'm one who loves to know everything. And as I've learned a little bit, maybe just a really little bit, but a little bit, not to know, it's so much easier. So then, what happens is we begin to develop a little contentment. And we're balanced with what is. And it's okay, whatever it is. Whether we're tired, whether it's raining, whether the sun is shining, whether we had what we liked for lunch or didn't like. And we're not busy even when there's a lot going on. We're just contented with what is. Another word for this is sometimes equanimity. We talk about equanimity in this practice a lot. That place of balance, of being able to ride the waves of whatever comes in any given moment. Now, this does not mean that you don't wobble. You know, everybody wobbles. It's like one of those, you know, those dolls that are weighted on their bottoms and you push them and they fall over and then they bounce back up. And so equanimity is like that. It, it doesn't mean that you don't get pushed over. It just means that you know 
how to come back to that place of balance over and over again. It's not, equanimity is not static. Contentment is not static. It's not about being in one place. It's not about some kind of normal. So another sign I came across just last week driving down one of the streets in Santa Cruz up on one of those boards, it said, normal is a setting on the dryer. I loved it. Normal is a setting on the dryer, you know. So that's where you can find normal. If you need to find normal, you can go down to the laundry room and look at the dryer. But don't expect to find normal in here because there isn't any. And so this practice is really about being at home anywhere, being contented anywhere, you know. Letting go of the idea that our experience has to be any particular way letting go of that place of always, you know, wanting something else or, or trying to push something away. Letting go of the notion that anything is going to be permanent and static, that we begin to see that impermanence is the nature of all existence. Galway Cannell says, whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. Whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. It's a wonderful poem. Just that. Just what is. That's what I want, is what is. So each evening, probably right about now, maybe an hour or two ago, um, the Honu, the sea turtles, following some deep inner instinctual learning, come home to rest in safety in their pool on the Hawaiian beach. And so really the question for you is, can, can you, can we, by bringing really careful attention to our own experience and situation, find that safe, secure resting place that is not busy, can we find um, curiosity and contentment in our time here and confidence so that when you do return in a number of days to the busier oceans of your lives, you have some better sense of what that rhythm of safety and rest is. So here's another poem that I just came across today. It's from John O'Donohue. And he says, I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. So that's a great poem for a retreat. Can you live in this retreat with curiosity, with some confidence and some contentment? Can you live and be surprised by your own unfolding. Who knows what you will see when you are here? Please don't know. Please don't know. I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. So let's sit just as you are. Don't move because this is part of the learning. You can meditate in any posture. Sit just as you are and let's breathe together for a moment.
Whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. So thank you very much for listening this evening. And you have about 40 minutes for walking practice before the last sit. Maybe we'll chant a little at the sitting. <laughs>